Welcome back to the Key in the Lake podcast, the premier whiskey podcast, now with the mention of whiskey in its title. Hey, this is Jake coming live from Lakeview East, Chicago, Illinois, and live from the International Recording Studios, known as Key in the Lake, also known as the second bedroom in my basement. Wow, what a lovely place. Um, oh, wow. A little laugh there. It lets you know that I'm not by myself this time like our previous podcast where I was recording all by my lonesome. No, no, no. Um, that voice you hear snickering on the microphone is the one and only Callum J. O'Donnell. I'm back. Where'd you go? Sorry, I couldn't come to New Orleans. I definitely had a lot of FOMO listening to that, listening to that podcast. With Mikey and Brett. Mikey, the main man. Brett, obviously, I've met before in, in, in the flesh. Um, Mikey, I have not, so I missed out on that. I'm shocked that we only recorded one podcast in New Orleans. Then again, I'm not that shocked because there was a lot of other it's things to, to take place <laughs> over that. But yes, um, we are. We also have a guest today, too. We're not just with Callum and myself. Also in New Orleans. We're also in New Orleans? No, who was also in New Orleans. <laughs> mentally. We were mentally in New Orleans. Oh, we were. Well, I mean, you uh, might still be back there. Uh, yeah, a, a person we've been trying to get in the podcast for ages. I mean, almost dates back to actually a year to the day, when, pretty close to when we met. Yeah. I would yeah, say. In Brooklyn, BCB. It was about, August this time. It must have been like almost a year to the day. I think it was like the 14th because okay. I moved here on like the 16th. All right. And that guest that we're having is Mr. Stephen Jagun. Hello. Thank you for having me. It's the dragon. The, the dragon. dragon. Well, yes. also Stephen Dragon. Also, yes. Um, brand ambassador for Listow. Right? Yes. Like, term, uh, terminology? Yep. Yeah, no. Approaching seven years, which is very hard to believe. Wow. Um, but it's been a very fun ride. It is a good place to start, though, because um, when I first met Stephen was through my coworker, Sean, who is our West Coast brand ambassador. You guys worked at Angels together. And we're talking in this bar before the chaos ensued that night. <laughs> What a night. Somehow it became like the official after party of BCB and of uh, two Australian unknown brands, but a great time. And you're like, yeah, I'm moving to Chicago tomorrow. I'm like, okay, well, we're in Brooklyn right now and it's like <laughs> 9 p.m. So what's your plan here? Never have I driven so hungover before in my mm. life. Oh, my God. Until that day. Holy oh, hell. Now I, I just remember because it was my last night in New York, shit faced, sitting <laughs> sitting on the like side of the road eating tacos from this taco stand at like two thirty, and I was like, oh, sweating booze. Yeah, I was like, I'm gonna miss this place. It was so yeah. surreal, but like oh. the perfect way to go out. That was a great Brooklyn thing. night too. It was a great Brooklyn. night. It was yeah. like perfect the temperature outside. Obviously, we just had a. Uh, it was you know one of the first. It was probably the first big spirits event in America to take place after yeah, COVID. Definitely. When talking about last August in 2021, and people were just excited to be out and about. Yeah, and I, I feel like that feeling is still rolling. Like, Tails was a great example. I mean, mm. it was the anniversary and everything, so, you know, it was going to be a bigger turnout, but... Um, I just felt like a lot of people showed up just because they yeah. wanted to see one another. I mean, it was great running into you and Sean and, and so many others. Uh, I had a blast. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I just, I was surprised how many Chicago people showed up to that event that year too. I was like, oh, I didn't know people came from Chicago to this New York <laughs> event. I'm like, oh, it makes sense though, because it is the first event we've had back since then. But yeah, it was a great night. I remember going to some, some like country dive bar and drinking Tecates outside and having an awesome time. Time and having like that would be the hangover. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Having, having a full like Chinese meat dinner <laughs> at uh, about two a.m. with Stefan from Mr. Black. Uh, yeah, so always the good times there. It was one of the, it's one of those moments where I look back if because we were debating on moving to New York back that time. Um, my oh, wife and I. A year ago already. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Shit. And we're like, oh my god, 
would have been great New Yorkers. <laughs> yeah. Y'all would have been right at home. Yeah, but I'm I'm glad we stayed here in in the end. But actually, I think Brittany was in town that week. I remember meeting at some bar in the village at one point in between events and, <laughs> and the cocktail programming of all that. But uh, yeah, we were also in New Orleans two weeks ago. That. <laughs> yeah, two weeks, I know, right? When when were we there? Was... Yeah, for Tales of the Cocktail, which uh, also the next uh, great big uh, spirits conference that we've had so far since uh, COVID has taken over our lives and we're trying to return to some point of normalcy. Yeah, no, it was, uh, both events were great. And e- even uh, BCB this year was uh, good. Um, oh, yeah, I didn't go this year. Yeah, well, they changed locations. And to be honest, they moved it to Sunset Park. And I was kind of you know, concern because it's a bit out of the way versus Williamsburg. But man, the turnout was great. I think it was, again, just rolling with this feeling of we're, we're, we're glad to be back mm-hmm. doing these things again. We want to I think know, it even kind of goes into like today, um, at least from my point of view, uh, being at an account and next thing you know, it's like 12 friends hanging out at a bar <laughs> at 4 PM. Then us three had dinner uh, over at a great place called Mamadilio over in Wicker Park. So if you're ever in Chicago or live in Chicago, definitely check that place out. Um, delicious meal, great cocktails, some good bubbles too. But uh, then I was next thing you know, Graham Essex is walking down the street and he joins us. He was a local bartender here in Chicago, worked at a, uh, uh, so many great spots here. And, you know, Manny that runs the bar program up there, it's like just having a whole big party in the middle of a Wednesday evening. Yeah, those were, from, those were pretty nifty cocktails as well. The coconut coconut infused i don't even like coconut coconut oil infused star wars was it coconut oil yeah mm-hmm. okay i couldn't hear yeah, yeah. it was good it was but just sea salt it was just the right amount of coconut it yeah. wasn't overwhelming it was like kind of meshed really well together with all the other flavors i thought the sherry actually brought out a lot of the flavor of the cocktail like we were saying in, in bordel i love me a bit of sherry and a translates it's whorehouse is that right yeah so bordel is whorehouse. <laughs> it's funny because he said tells me he's like what does bordel mean in french and i was like Look at the lighting. What do you think? And he's like, shiny time? <laughs> and I was like, you're getting there. <laughs> yeah, you know, nothing gets by me. <laughs> oh, no. Stephen, like, I love your story. Um, I find it similar in the sense that we both come from small towns uh, across the United States to live in big cities, and we feel like these are our homes and our place. Like, you coming from South Carolina and Columbia, I've only ever spent, I've spent actually two nights in, South, in Columbia, South Carolina. At, how, how were they? Um, pretty uneventful. Not, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was for a conference somewhere at some hotel that we were attached. You know, an embassy suites maybe. Right. Yeah. Okay. I know. I know exactly. It's, there was a strip club down the street. The power went out everywhere on <laughs> the block. Apart from the strip club. Um, <laughs> no, I've actually never been to a strip club, so I can honestly say that I was not there. But I had friends who did partake down there, and they're selling beer out of coolers, like you'd find, you know, like going fishing or going to a football game. And they were also using candles and flashlights to make sure that the show never it always went on on and off with the flashlight (laughs) on and off strobe 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 strobes how many Um, people live in columbia uh, i would say 225 to 250 well still bigger than where you're from that shithole no whoa (laughs) whoa you know what i remember why i don't come on this podcast Uh, Uh, i'm from a town of like you know thirty thousand people so it's pretty big compared to that yeah, no, well, so I went to college there, but I actually grew up in a town called Chapin, which at the time, it was a 2A school. I think there was 300 people graduating class. It was a two, three stoplight town, like mm. literally 
directions around the town would be like you turn left at the Hardee's and you go past the dump and you go past <laughs> you go past the tractor repair shop and you're there. Uh, and so, like the last time I went home, I I drove out there because since then it's expanded to a five A school and it's blown up because it's close to the lake. Oh. And it's so weird driving around. Yeah. It's like this used to be tiny, tiny yeah. and now it's another comparison that's my how my hometown is too it's like the one place where everybody wants to live yeah in des moines iowa yeah it's crazy it went from just you know old school southern people to everyone with money wants to move let's, you know let's out move. to the lake yeah. let's start a bar let's do it so what like what was it like for you coming from there like where was the first big set you stopped in and Chicago. Here, yeah. So I oh, came up. I, I came up here for a graduate audition. I went to school for music at Northwestern. Um, I came up at a different time of year than most of the other people auditioned. I came up in the fall. It was mm. usually like in oh, it's the winter. Beautiful in the fall as well. Yeah, and, and yeah, it was like mid October. Mm. I fell in love with it. I remember sitting at O'Hare on the way back to Columbia, going, "I have to go to school mm. here. I have to live in this city." Like I, I just I fell in love with it. I saw the you know Chicago Symphony for the first time, mm. and they did Mahler Six with Bernard Heitink, and it was incredible. I mean, the Art Institute, everything about it, the the food, the people. Um, yeah, I was just enthralled, captivated, and yeah, I'm so Evanston, lucky. Evanston that time of year too, with all the trees and the colors changing, everything. Falls a beautiful time. It really is. It's inspiring as well, right? Because it's that pretty. You're just yeah. like everywhere you go, and that's the cool thing. I've I've had a bunch of people staying in Chicago recently, and every one of them said the same thing. It's it's so clean. It mm. is compared to what you think of as a big city. Right. You know, one of the one of the guys that stayed we have with me. Alleys. Is, yeah, yeah, the genius <laughs> of it. One of the guys that stayed with me uh, this week. Um, he's a good friend of mine. His younger brother stayed as well, Matt. And Matt had come from New York, and he'd never been to New York before, um, or he had been when he, but he was like when he was fourteen or whatever. And he was just mm. like, man, the first thing he noticed when he got off the plane to Chicago, he was like, man, it doesn't stink. Mm. Right? Yeah, <laughs> it doesn't. I mean, New York has always been you know trashy in that regard, but COVID made it so much worse. I mean, right. during the height of the pandemic. The times you actually left your apartment to go to the store or whatever, just the mountains of mm. garbage bags just piled on the street for weeks because no one's coming around to pick it up. Mm. Uh, it took that stench to a whole new level because uh, it's already pretty bad. Inspiring in other ways. I know. Yeah, exactly. Inspiring to get out. <laughs> but we had, uh, so you came here and then um, obviously you're at Evanston going to Northwestern. What brought you down actually into the city? Uh, I graduated. It was 2008. A great time to get out of school. You know, the market crashed. Oh, I know. That too I know, well. right? <laughs> Good old journalism degree. Um, yeah, right? Yeah, music degree. Not not too helpful, uh, or at least in America anyway. Um, yeah, I, I, got, I lucked out, though. I got a desk job uh, working for Northwestern hmm. at their student health center booking doctor's appointments. I must say, I learned so much about my friends' medical histories. Oh, uh, yeah. Very awkward. You know, they'd come to check in. You'd be like, okay. Oh, I see you're here for, oh. Oh, well, good luck oh. with good oh. luck with that friend of mine. Yeah. <laughs> now <laughs> we are no longer What's wrong friends? with your mind? <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> um, I did that for a year and a half. I hated it, uh, you know, just sitting at a desk all day. And that's when I got into bartending. I was oh. like, you know, to hell with this. You know, I had a large uh, saxophone studio at the time. I was like, you know, I could go bartend. I could have a much more flexible schedule to teach and to gig. And I could make more money. Because working full-time, I was, after taxes, clearing like four twenty-five a week. 
you know, like brutally yeah. hard to survive in Chicago yep. on, you know, that sort of pay. And I, to be honest, looking back, I don't honestly don't know how I did it. I did, never went out. It ever. is amazing like how we just persevere through all of that. You just figure out, like, I was making three twenty five a week working in an art gallery the first year I was out of college. And I, I had another job too in event planning that maybe that made up for that. But the first few months of out of college, I was doing graphic design work for basically free helping this guy install art for basically free and then working at art gallery if they paid me for like $350 a week. <laughs> like, you know, like, at a free place to live. That was the only place what, how I could figure out how to actually survive. Yeah, no, I mean, you hit the nail on the head. It's like you, you find a way to make it work and looking back, it's like the only times I went out, it was like if it's Bar yeah. Louie's Dollar Burger Night oh. or when Nevin's Irish Pub was still open, like $6 pictures on mm-hmm. Thursdays. Split like, eat your friends. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> right, it's like, right. you know, I really became a bargain shopper across the board for everything yeah. I did. And yeah, you just got to roll with it. I used to take $20 out of the ATM beginning of the week. And I always went to a coffee shop and did, you know, like some writing and reading before I went to work. And once that $20 is gone, if it was for coffee, if it was for buying a new album, because, you know, back in the day, kids, there's a thing called CDs. Right. <laughs> um, and then buying a pack of smokes and maybe a book that week to read. It's like, all right, get a library card and make that Man, go a little bit longer. You're not smoking a lot of packets of cigarettes on 350 a week if you got to live as well, well let me tell you back in the day my son before obama passed all those taxes to take cigarettes so high up in value and so high up in price to buy down in the mountains or you go to the indian reservations and yes. they sold and they hand rolled cigarettes that were delicious and a different form of Tastes tobacco like digestives yeah oh yeah man 250 a, a pack oh, oh yeah delicious me up yeah, yeah they were delicious so that's how Mr. Jake Hookie survived um, at 22 years old down in good old Santa Fe, New Mexico. <laughs> I think I had a bottle of rum in my room, too, somewhere. Yeah. As one does. Bacardi. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, hey, those looks. Don't judge me. You know, we all have to start somewhere drinking. Yeah, Stephen, don't judge it. Yeah. I, uh, I started off way worse than that, so and it's okay. <laughs> so you, you started bartending, and that kind of set you down this path that you probably never thought you'd get. No, down, right? so bartending was always just a vehicle to make money while I tried mm. to be a musician. Ah, yeah, and yeah. I moved to England for a year to do more grad school. I bartended over the year. <laughs> what was that I, like I know, for? right? Fucking England. Fucking England. Three Sorry. lions, man. Sorry. Hey, you know Jesus. what? Don't hey, touch me anymore. Hey, you know, you're banned. We're, hey, European champions. England. I mean, yeah, good for the women. It was yeah. Manchester, if that makes you feel any better. It wasn't. Like I do love. I do love Manchester. Yeah. I've only been out there one time, and it was fantastic. Never it been. Is, it's a gritty town. You sure. and you and you bartended there. Yeah, um, and I quickly realized that bartending abroad is not nearly as fun as it is over here, just because a tip, if you got one, was like, yeah, you know, five p. You know, like, oh, thanks for your nickel. Uh, yeah, that'll go a long way. Yeah. I uh, particularly remember this one night because I felt like such a cunt <laughs> in that uh, it was busy and this guy kept... He has the lingo down at least. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. The hard T as well. Yeah, it's a good word. I want to reclaim the word. Because uh, in England, it means deplorable human. I feel like in America, uh, with everything that's going on, it's like, we need a non-gender, like, we just need a word that, you know, for, embraces everyone for being a complete shitty human being. Yeah, yeah. C- cunt <laughs> is good for Here them. at Keenan Lake, we support the word cunt. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, but I was bartending, and th- uh, this gentleman kept saying, like, oh, I gotta get a pie and beer. And I thought he kept saying, I want a pint of beer. And mm-hmm. I just kept, I'm like, I'm sorry, like, which beer do you want? Mm. And, oh, I want a pint of beer. I was like, 
And finally, I realized he's pointing at the bottle or the can of Boddington's. It's like, mm, oh, bitter. you want a kind, yeah, a pint of bitter. Bitter. And I was like, fuck, a I pint of bitter, a pint, pint of bitter, yeah, pint huh. of bitter beer, bitter beer. Uh. And I was like, oh, what pot nice. beer, mate? Yeah, what pot, big pot beer. I felt like such a. You were ass. like, wait, beer, bitter? bitter? What are you yeah, saying? I was like, what? Like, why speak don't you English. have a, why, You created the fucking language. Why, True. why don't you only have? Why do you only have three teeth? <laughs> <laughs> that's also a great question too. I mean, that's the thing though. Back home, like, it's just completely different. Bartending is not the people that pursue it and the people that come out of the UK and cocktail competitions, whatever it might be. They're doing it because it's their passion, man. Mm. Dead simple. Yeah. Because none of them are doing it for the money. Right. Yeah. No, definitely not. Whereas you find people here, they, they're bartending and serving and waiting and waiting tables and all that. They're doing that for the money. It's right. Like, absolutely. Yeah. It's like, oh, Graham Essex, great example. Like somebody who's completely passionate about yeah. it. Yeah. We should, we should probably have him on. I don't know why we didn't just bring him up tonight. We should have, yeah. I think he went to go home and change. That's why. You got to get out that brick line. Change into a nice boy? Yes. <laughs> out, of his, out of his brick line gear. <laughs> oh. oh, man. What a guy. No, and it is interesting. I remember the first time I went over to England, uh, you come in with this perspective of what American bar scene is, even when it comes to like a pub. But we are all still based on making money from tips. And the first pub you go to, you're like, oh, like they don't give a shit. Like you're waiting there to get a beer. Like the first person that has like their card out ready to pay, they just give it to that person. You don't have to stand there and wait at all. Then you go to places like. Uh, like Mr. Lion and all that kind of stuff. And you're like, oh, this is like the American experience of cocktails. And what do you think about with New York, Chicago, LA, San Francisco? And then you meet a guy who's sitting there waiting on you. And he's like, where are you guys from? And like Chicago is like, oh, I actually have a bottle of whiskey from a Chicago distillery. And I'm like, is it called a Koval? And he's like, yeah. I, my, he's like, how do you know? I'm like, because I worked there. <laughs> and he's like, yeah, my, my, he was from, uh, I think he's from Edinburgh. And, he moved down to to London to work for Mr. Lion and his his uh old boss at the bar he worked at in Edinburgh gave him a bottle of Koval Rye as a sending away gift. And you're like It's like how a punishment. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's how I see it. At the time you're like, Wow, what a coincidence. Even though I literally just got off the phone to do an interview with Slow and Low to leave that job. But but you think about wow, what an amazing coincidence for that this small distillery right. in Chicago. Has met this guy who's from you know from Scotland and now has moved to, moved to London and you're sitting at the bar and he's waiting on you. It's a small world. I, I'm amazed at how many times I say that over the course of my life. It's like, what are you doing here? How did this happen? It's literally the it's first crazy. person I run to entails is Steven. Yeah. I, I walk I walk into the Ritz Carlton where the headquarters of everything was. I'm looking around like, where the fuck is the registration? And all of a sudden it's like, hey Jake, and you're like, oh, hey Steven, the dragon. Yeah, I've I've been here for like a half an hour in New Orleans. I'm glad I ran into a friend. Yeah. Where is registration at? I, I always say that, you, especially in this industry, and like you've been bartending since 2009. You'll know this better than anyone. Um, you have to. You should always be careful. One about what you're saying. <sighs> mm-hmm. And who two, like to. who you're saying it to, <laughs> and maybe lips. even three, and maybe even three, Ooh. like be careful the way that you're acting. Like if you could yeah. be in some random bar in the middle of bumfuck nowhere, if you're blasted, someone's gonna be like, oh, actually, yeah, I met the guy from Star Wars, right. yeah. and then somehow they know someone who yeah, knows someone. No, or, yeah, oh, I, twice, three times, two or three times in Kentucky. We're not, we don't sell in Kentucky. I'm sitting at a bar and like Jake, and you're like, y- 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 yeah, yeah. like Star Wars, <laughs> right? I'm like. Yeah, and like oh, we leave met, me alone. Yeah, we met, we, we met like this, and like of course, like Brittany's like, God damn it, his ego is going to be inflated like crazy because some random person recognizes him. But it's like, yeah, it, you're 100 percent right. You're, it's midnight at a bar in the, in 
a state five hours away from your hometown in a state in which you don't even sell into, but someone recognizes you from the internet, from wherever it might be, but we're all so interconnected this way through the internet and through things like Tails and BCB. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Never, never can really get away with it. No, yeah. It's, it's hard to escape. So what was the first bar you were bartending at in Chicago? Uh, Nevin's Irish Pub oh. in Evanston. Oh, nice. Yeah, it clo- I was sad to hear it closed, I don't know, the last couple of years. I was going to say, I don't COVID. think it's... Yeah, I think Casualty. So. Yeah. yeah. It was a good spot. I mean, you know, no thrills, you know, just solid Irish pub. Yeah. Uh, you know, we would always go on Thursdays because of the dollar pitchers. And then uh, being poor grad students after that, you know, shit faced, we'd walk down to Taco Bell and, you know, do the two... Dollar tacos. Yeah, exactly. Um, 88 cent burritos. Beef and potato burritos. I would love to know how many I had of those when I was in school. There was What, in one sitting? No. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's the thing with Taco Bell. We would always play the game, like, how many items are you going to get? And mm. if someone's like, I'm going to get three, you're like, oh, my God, you're going to have the worst day tomorrow. I'm going to four. I can beat you. I can, I can beat that. Yeah. So then you move over to England where when you're having that experience completely different bartending over there, what are you thinking at this point career-wise? Still wanted to be a musician. I went over there. So I went to school for saxophone and music theory, and I went to England to do orchestral conducting. Mm. So I essentially, while I was in grad school, realized that as much as I love the saxophone, there aren't many opportunities in the saxophone world. I mean, you're essentially limited to joining a military band, (laughs) which is decent pay and good benefits, but you're going to play John Philip Sousa marches the rest of your life. Beautiful. Go be a band director, which, you know, crazy hours, not a lot of good pay at all. Yeah. Um, Or go be a a saxophone professor, which typically means you'll be an adjunct at like two or three spots and, you know, you're just being pulled in many directions. But the biggest thing for me was, and this was even the the case after I finished the the conducting degree in England, the idea of I'm going to have to move to somewhere that I don't want to live. That, that just kept coming back to me. And it's like, you know, I've lived in places that I didn't want to live. Mm. And I've been able to reflect on it and see how that impacted my life. And I don't ever want to live somewhere that I'm not happy with. I mean, they always say the grass is always greener. But, I mean, I do feel that if you're not happy with where you live, that does just seep into all aspects of your life. And were so, you always, like, wanting to escape when you were a kid? Yeah. Well, and so I was an army brat. And so, oh. you know, I was born in Germany. We traveled a lot. And then after all of, you know, moving around, we settled in South Carolina, <laughs> which was very bizarre. We went there because my grandfather passed away and my dad wanted to be close to my mm. grandmother. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, like, after all of that stuff winding up in South Carolina. It's like, what are we doing here? Mm-hmm. And so I stayed there from third grade to college. And yeah, uh, again, when I was at O'Hare, I was like, I got to go to school here mm-hmm. or anywhere that's not South Carolina. And I was very bold. I only auditioned at two places, University of Michigan and Northwestern, hmm. um, which was, at, you know, looking, looking back, back on, is dumb. Yeah, very stupid of me. I'm glad <laughs> Ann Arbor's a great out. town, though. Yeah, no, Ann Arbor is cool. But yeah. Ann Arbor felt very much like Columbia. Like, it's a college town. Mm-hmm. It's all about football. And there's not much going on outside of that. Chicago was like, wow, look at all the stuff that's going on here. One of the things you say there really resonates with me, and I think with anyone that lives in Chicago, hmm. waking up in Chicago in the summer, mm-hmm. right? It's a Friday morning. You know mm. that you don't have any work meetings after one, you know, and the sun is very up. specific. And it's like, <laughs> don't know that I don't know in Fahrenheit, but it's maybe like 
eighties. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And the sun's like seeping through the windows and you're just thinking, oh man, this is Chicago. Like this weekend, there's going to be something going on this weekend. I'm going to have a blaze of fun. Everybody's going to be out. Everybody's going to be on, on top form. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I think that living in Chicago, obviously in the winter, it crushes all of us. I think <laughs> it does definitely crush us all. I think we've all been there. But in the summer, you know, it's, it's oh man, there's nothing no, like it. it's electric. No, I think it makes up for it. And to be fair, I feel like, you know, it's been 12 years since I lived here last. Hmm. So going into this first winter, I was having all these, like, you know, terrible memories. And uh, it, for me anyway, I don't think it was that bad. I mean, to see days like in the 40s, the 50s, even the 60s in January and February, mm-hmm. that never happened when I lived here. It was always, mm-hmm. it's not going to go above freezing <laughs> from January to mid-March yeah. every year. And it's just, the snow is going to just sit World's there. It's changing, man. Yeah, I know. I know. The year before it was like that. Was it? <sighs> yeah. Okay. Cal escaped the Caribbean for a couple months and missed all that. Some of us are clever. <laughs> no, um, no, I hear you, Jimmy. I remember when I moved here in 2011, I think, at first, and was here for about a year, then, like, spent some time away. I don't even know what I did. I don't think I really lived anywhere. Just kind of traveling at that point. But every time I came to Chicago to, like, see an ex or to, like, come here for work or whatever, every time dra- going to O'Hare, I was like, God, I'm leaving home. I felt like okay, this is this is a place where I need to be, and eventually just made it my home a few months later, and been here for ten years or whatever since. But there's this a magnetic pull that Chicago has. Like once you get it, once you taste that like that taste that taste of summer, you get a little bit yeah. of that on your mouth, and you're like oh, you go to the lake and you see everything when it's eighty ninety degrees and sun shining all day long and you're like oh wow like this could be a happy spot like, you could have a beer in your hand all day too and not like not like you have to get drunk about it just like you have the taste of chicago in right. that sense because it's such a craft beer town it's a town where people want to be outside when i tell people it's like a lake town people are like what are you talking about I'm like the second biggest lake right, in yeah. the country is like, like right, an ocean yeah <laughs> exactly that's what i call it the ocean you can't see the other side right. yeah um it's right there and people it's not even about getting into the lake. It's about being just down on the lake steps, being down on North Ave Beach and experiencing something that you can only have and cherish for 90 days and then it's gone <laughs> like right. at a flip of a switch. Well, and it's, it's so nice that that's so accessible because yeah. you know, even in New York, it's like, well, you got to go all the way down to Rockaway. Yeah. Like, if you live in Manhattan, that's going to take you a bit. Yeah. I mean, the fact that you, you know, if you live in the city, you could be on the beach in 20 minutes. It's yep. like clutch. Very much so. No, it's for four months of the year. Yeah, <laughs> four four is a stretch. Yeah, three and a half. Yeah, three and a half. As somebody who runs along the beachside every day, uh, yeah, we're lucky to get three. I'll put it that way. Yeah, I think it's kind of mental. Twelve years is a long time between you deciding. So you you left England, you came back, and you you came to New York. Yeah. So well, so no, I came. I moved home to South Carolina. The master plan was to move to England and stay in Europe. Oh. Um, I quickly realized. Did you that have citizenship in Germany? I could have German passport probably. Yeah. Although were you born on base, maybe I was born on base. Nah. That's good. It's harder that way. Yeah. Right? Well, it was essentially I could have had dual citizenship up to eighteen, but of course I didn't know that. And then after the fact, it's like, well, oh, shit, I missed yeah. out on a great opportunity. Mm-hmm. If you're a really good soccer player, they probably would have figured it out. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, football. Sorry. Yeah. No, sorry, I mean Callum. that's okay. It's all right. It's all right. <laughs> Just taking it easy over here. Oh, Everton with the win this weekend. Calling Hopefully. it. Calling it. 
Um, so you came back over with yeah. a plan of moving to Europe. The, or the plan was originally to move to Europe, but you came back because you were like, "Well, I came back because I had no choice. My you know program ended. Oh, I, right, I quickly right. realized like it's easy to get over there. It's very hard to stay right. to get a full time job. I mean, most people aren't going to sponsor a visa for you. I mean, it, you would have to be so unbelievably overqualified, you know, versus them hiring an American versus someone from the EU." Mm. So it's either you're amazing or you get married or you get the hell out of here. But even I was looking at this recently because mm. it's hard to do it's hard to do it the other way, right? It's hard to come from the UK or Europe to the United States. Yeah. And I thought that this was the hardest place in the world to get into, but actually the UK you have to be married and living together for 3 years before they'll even start processing your application whereas in the united states like if you've been married for like a month right, like, right, right. Yeah, that's, that's why a lot of people get married huh. i have you know I have i'm friends. gonna guess australia might be a little bit harder probably and maybe this little place called japan oh i don't, I don't know anything <laughs> about the visa regulations in japan to be fair let me tell you about it i once fell in love with a japanese man <laughs> oh here we go <laughs> was he a saxophonist <laughs> i'm not sure that is but i uh, got a thing for saxophones up in here mm, i did play the saxophone in fifth grade it's a great instrument. It is a great instrument. It is. It's a, it's a shame because it's so late to the game versus all the other instruments. So that's why you never see it in orchestras. Were you in a ska band? No. No. Oh. Thankfully, I was not in the ska band. I guess you're probably like three, four years a little behind that. Yeah, I was. Like, our fair. generation's just a tad I, behind. I probably would have been, to be <laughs> So come back from England. You're forced back to forced Chapin. Back, yeah, well, to Columbia. Columbia. Um, but yeah, forced back to South Carolina. Uh, bartended, opened a jazz lounge. I had a, I had oh, a nice cool. had a nice little studio saxophonist again. But yeah, a year and a half into it, I was like, you know, I didn't do all these awesome things to wind up back here. Right. And yeah. so the options were move back to Chicago, or I was 28 at the time. New York was on my radar, and I felt like if I don't do it now, I'm never going to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I ultimately decided on New York. Also, though, I was thinking, not going to lie, was thinking about the Chicago winners. It was like. Don't know if yeah. I'm quite ready oh, for those. No. Maybe you need like a few more I years totally, away from that. I totally respect that. You know, uh, it's like, those are intense. Let me give New York a try. Let me grow a beard. Yeah. Me, yeah. If I could grow one, man. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I, I ultimately decided to, you know, just up and move to New York. No job. I crashed with my aunt. It was a very Harry Potter situation. Like I was on a single sized cot. Uh, listeners, I'm six foot four, so uh, this huge, huge animal on this very small cot in the middle. Oh, listeners, <laughs> oh dear, listener, uh, listeners, in this, in this you know Manhattan four. apartment, uh, and that was my home for ten weeks until you know I got a job on the third day, which made me feel good. It was yeah, like success story. Moved to New York, you know, get a job right away. Were you bartending? I was I, uh, this awesome spot in Greenwich Village called Zinc Bar. Hmm. It's a jazz lounge, but it's like the the jazz lounge for the locals, like all the mm. like really good local gigs play there. It's not quite jazz standard or, you know, some of the bigger names, but really solid people. Would Is it still there? there? It's still there. Yeah. And would you, when you were working there, would you ever like, would you ever whip out the sacks? No, I never did. Because oh, uh, I was always like bartending. I know. It, it, it kind of Did they know your resume when you got the job? Yeah, they did. And yeah, just it never. To be fair, I was not there long. Okay. I was there for like a few weeks and then... And, I got a job teaching at a bartending school, which I did that for a few months. Which one? EBS? No. It's, <laughs> it's no longer in existence. Ooh, defunct. Defunct, <laughs> yes. It was called 1-800-BARTEND. Oh, oh, I know. 
and yeah, yeah, I did that for a few months and then quickly realized what it was and lucked out and got a job uh, running this bar in Gowanus, Brooklyn called Lucy's Lounge. Mm. Uh, I was their head bartender forever and I, I stayed there for a long time and that's kind of where I, you know, Learned got my, the trade. I learned the trade. That's when I really started to hone, you know, like my cocktail skills. Yeah. Um, you know, they were great. Uh, I love, I mean, they're like brothers to me now. So mm. I'm, I was very fortunate. Were you looking for like a passion to substitute music? No. I mean, I'm still trying right. to find a way to make music a thing uh, in my own way. Man, take a job like working in a jazz lounge and just be that guy that no one knows and then one day the curtain pulls back and there you are you're standing there you're a saxophone and everyone's like wait I thought you were the bartender I know. there's a great there's a great bar in Houston that you should go play at yeah yeah I'm, the name escapes me but <laughs> it's a great jazz bar I used bar. to do it back home in South Carolina when between uh, England and New York when I opened that jazz lounge I would get on stage and play and then like run back and yeah because would people not love that the bartender just absolutely slaying a couple of tunes. Yeah, no, it would mm, be awesome. It, so, it worked well. When did music become such a huge part of your life? Was that always or? No, to be honest, initially it was drawing because my, my mom was an art teacher. Oh. And so I was really into drawing and, you know, painting. And then, I mean, it was fifth grade band. Um, <laughs> I didn't, well, I wanted to play drums. Yeah. My parents were like, too noisy. Yeah. <laughs> I wanted to play trumpet. They're like, we don't too like, too noisy. We don't, yeah, we don't like the trumpet. We don't support that. <laughs> um, they're like, you should play saxophone. So I was like, okay, I'll play saxophone. And then I go to the band audition and the band director's like, we have too many. You got to play clarinet. Ugh. And I told him, I was like, I'm already playing the thing I don't want to play. Like, if you don't let me play the thing, I'm not going to be in, in the band. Mm-hmm. And so they let me play saxophone. I was terrible. I mm. was, you know, last chair, like just awful. And then music became a big part of my life when my parents got divorced. It kind of became my escape. Mm. And I went from terrible to really good. Right. Uh, w- within a couple years. And, you know, in high school, I was always in all state, uh, you know, always at the top. Um, it just be- it just became like a big part of myself. It became an avenue to escape you know, the hard times at home. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I mean, it's still not quite that escape for me now because I don't have those issues, but it's still, I mean, at any given point during the day, I have some sort of song going through my head. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm always thinking about Mm -hmm. it, Uh, always, you know, yearning for it. When did you start writing your own music? I was very late to the game. So that was probably 2016, 17. Um, yeah, so I didn't start writing until I, I got Lyme disease in New York, Oof. and it was terrible. Mm-hmm. I was sick for like three and a half years. Oh, I, man, that's I gained bad. a ton of weight. I had to stop playing because I just physically could not play. Um, but once I started to get better, I was you know starting to get back into the sax and you know practicing every day. And I was like, well, I gotta have like an outlet for me to play, or you know just something mm-hmm. other than me practicing the same shit I've been mm-hmm. you know playing before I stopped. And so, yeah, I started to compose and, you know, just writing things for me. Mm. And, you know, it's it's something I'm still trying to work on and try to find my own way. But it's been very enjoyable. And I wish I would have gotten into it sooner. And I don't know, I guess maybe I always had this preconceived notion of, well, you're, you're a saxophonist, you're a composer, you got to compose jazz, mm-hmm. you know, just because that's what saxophonists Lends do. Itself to, yeah. Right. And I love jazz, don't get me wrong, but... 
I always felt like I had more interest outside of just one particular style of music. And I've never, ever wanted to be pigeonholed as just a saxophonist or a jazz musician. It's like, I love, I love all sorts of things. You know, I love rap. I love, you know, classical music. I love jazz. I love rock. I mean, I have so many interests. I I just didn't want to be another saxophonist trying Mm -hmm. to be the next John Coltrane or Charlie Parker, which Mm -hmm. I feel like, that's what a lot of people are and, and you know good for them and i wish them all the best but i always wanted to try to find my own voice mm. uh, in the music world so i think i found it but i'm still working on it i mean it, it takes time and mm. i'm a perfectionist i i could probably release a you know three times as much uh you know material if i would just say just put it out there man like mm-hmm. stop nitpicking over everything um and also editing is another avenue of being extremely nitpicky because you know you write the piece and then you know you get to the point where you can play the piece and now you got to record it and so you record it and then you go back and you're editing and you're trying to like you know change things and make it perfect and i can't tell you how many times like after hours of editing fuck it nah fuck it i'm just going to record it ag- over again yeah. you know and yeah. so that that has been a very large process for me yeah. is mm. just like realizing editing is it's it's a whole nother you know world to obsess about um and yeah that just takes time and, and a lot of effort but it's nice in the fact that we can do that at home mm-hmm. now i mean even when i was in grad school you had to go to the computer lab yeah. where they had computers you know powerful enough to do these programs <laughs> and now it's like if you have a good laptop and a decent mic and an interface like you can you can record anywhere tell me about it yeah <laughs> <laughs> and here we are and here we are yeah so, so when you got lyme disease was that comparable to what we've experienced in the last few years of the pandemic where there's like it's it's terrible it's horrible and then you start to like kind of live with it and deal with it and you find some silver lining in it yeah i mean, I mean we, I, you I, and i've talked to talk about this before right yeah. no i i feel like for the people who have long covid i think it's very similar because you know I, I was hospitalized i was in you know critical care for 10 days i had a temporary pacemaker put in to keep me alive while the yeah. medicine worked and then you know they released me and I was supposed to be good to go, but I wasn't. I mean, I still felt ill. I remember, you know, the first six months I had abdominal pain just mm. every day, <sighs> just for no reason. Uh, I kept seeing doctors and, well, you know, it's still in your blood, but, you know, it's it's always going to be there. I, I didn't get answers. Right. And it, It's a very confusing disease. It is. Yeah. Well, it's very particular in that it... it focuses on your particular weaknesses so mm. you know for me it was my heart uh, a good friend of mine got it you know a few months after me his whole face stopped working he had cerebral palsy right. it really just it, yeah. it cripples y- your your system but it really does target whatever weakness it can find and mm-hmm. it goes hard with that so i think that's one of the issues why it's it's so hard to you know get people to bounce back from it because it, it's very particular to the individual Mm. Hmm. and so yeah i eventually had to go to a doctor who was you know four hundred dollars a visit out of pocket he was you know still doing traditional uh western medicine but integrated eastern medicine with it so i started getting into you know lots of herbs and holistic medicine and the combination of the two is what really brought me out of it and that was right before covid i finished my last (laughs) treatment like november i didn't know it was that soon 
I finished my last treatment of in November 2019, like back to normal. I, I felt so good. I was like, I felt like myself again. Like I felt like I did when I first moved to New York. Yeah. And then, yeah, COVID happened four months later. And I was like, you've got to be fucking kidding me. I haven't, <laughs> I haven't had a real life in five years now. Uh, it's just I've been looking through this kind of hell for, you don't even know by myself, you assholes. Yeah, I know. Rest yeah. of the world. Yeah. So oh. it was, it was a, it was a thing. But yeah. music came out of it for you, right? Music had come out of it for me, yeah. Huh. And I'm still trying to, you know, figure out how to bring that into I, a perfect world. I'd love to blend the music and, you know, the booze world together. A cocktail, if you will. Yes, absolutely. Hmm. What do you think? What could that look like? That is the question. I mm. don't know. Um, how does one sell Australian whiskey? Wait, 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 sorry, no. <laughs> Different personal, personal question. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, again, like the, the saxophone world is very limited. And so it's like I can, you know, play gigs, you know, start, you know, jamming mm-hmm. out, but I'm not going to make any money. I'm not going to play the music that I'm writing. I can try to perform the stuff I'm writing, but it's very particular and it's like it's saxophone and electronic music. So it's literally just me on stage with music I'm playing over in the background. Um, so I'm still trying to figure out what is the best avenue to do it. Hmm. Hmm. So after all those years of bartending, playing music, doing that simultaneously, when did you make the switch from the side of the bar, pouring the drinks, making the drinks to the opposite side of being brand ambassador? That was 2015. Um, I was very lucky in that I moved. I, so I won a cocktail competition back home in South Carolina, (laughs) just local, not even a brand thing, just, Mm you know, a, a local thing. And that's what actually was one of the, the things that made me start to think about New York. It's like, well, I'm good at this bartending thing, which I never expected to be. Mm-hmm. Um, Just like music, it sounds like. Yeah. You know, and it's like, where could I move to where both of these worlds could collide and make a big impact? So yeah. I, that's why I was like, well, New York. And so I moved to New York. And then within the first year, I, I won a national Calvados competition and that kind of opened up the doors for me, and I started getting other opportunities, and eventually landed a job with Angels Envy hmm. about a year later. How long were they into like launching the brand and everything then? So when I started, um, I guess they were five years in. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, four and a half years, five years in. Still very young. Yeah. Yeah. Very still young. very young. Yeah. They're. I mean, obviously, they're still. I would say they're still trying to figure out their way, but they're. St- Still this, a, a new brand. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I got in right before Bacardi acquired them. Okay. So it's like I I saw the brand before that, but then I was part of the you know transition team, mm-hmm. uh, you know, into what it is now. What uh, attracted you to, to them? I just I love the product. I remember coming home from England and it had just hit the market. Yeah. And I was bartending. I was like, "Fuck, that's good whiskey. Mm-hmm. Like, that's really good." I you know, so we served it at our bar. I mean, it never went on a menu just because of the price point, but. <laughs> You know, it was, it was definitely an upsell that I, I would recommend, you know, frequently. And, yeah, I before I got into the brand side, I was a beverage director for Hospitality Holdings, which oh. they own seven locations in Midtown, Manhattan. One of them at the time was the Campbell Apartment in Grand Central, which mm-hmm. is a very, you know, old school historic building that they, you know, turned into a bar. Um, yes, uh, the the Campbell's there now. Right? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a really good yeah. spot. It's still there. It's just uh, their lease expired, and then Randy Gerber, you know, got the new lease, and I think he paid like double. <laughs> we were paying a hundred grand a month for that place, so I can only imagine what he's paying for it now. Wow! Yikes! Um, he paid for the studio. 
But because, yeah, he could. <laughs> um, but it was one of those jobs where because I oversaw so many bars, I met a lot of suppliers right. and, you know, just, you know, distributor reps. And that's what kind of opened up the door for the Angels Emmy thing is I left that job. Uh, I was running a jazz uh, bar in Greenwich Village called Analog. Oh. And, uh, yeah. I know you were in. Oh, yeah. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> I was there for like half a year. Oh. And then the Angels Emmy guy who had met at the, the job previously, he came in one day and we had, you know, all of them, the ride, the yeah. cast strength. And so, you know, we reconnected and, you know, we did some things. And then, yeah, a few months later, I saw that they had an opening and I emailed them and, yeah, I got the job. I love Bob's your uncle. Bonnie's your uncle. I love it. I love Analog. Yeah. No, it's a beautiful spot. Yeah. yeah. Great spot. We've, uh, Dine or you know drank there a couple of times. Great whiskey selection, great vibe. Uh, the the aesthetics really good. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, no, it's a lot. Man, I love that whole area of New York too. Obviously, Greenwich Village is wonderful. Yeah, it's yeah. if if it wasn't you know thirty five hundred dollars a month for a studio apartment that's two hundred fifty square feet, would right. would love to live there in right, a heartbeat. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah, in New Jersey. <laughs> <laughs> uh, how was it running a bar program? You know, going from that switch of being. You know, music is my passion. I figure out this other thing that you're you're good at. You're coordinating it. You're you made your move to New York, and now you've gone from, you know, doing it as a side hustle to something you're making your profession. To now, I'm running a program. No, I I didn't expect to take to it as well as I did. But I think the biggest thing that drew me to it was the cocktail creation aspect. Mm. It's like I have a job that allows me to be creative and create like. I'm not doing music, but I'm still creating things. Right. That's what I've been thinking the entire time of this conversation. It's like, at least you're like, in a way, creating, I don't want to say creating your own music, but you're kind of, you know, writing your own story. Yeah. Just being creative, you know, on a regular basis, which I didn't have, you know, being behind the desk. Um, So, yeah, I think that was the the major driver is like, I can be creative, but also like, I'm good at this, Mm -hmm. you know? And, you know, as, as you guys know, if there's something you're good at, you know, it makes you feel good. And and when you pursue it and you get better, you know, it's, you tend to stick with that thing. It's Mm -hmm. very rarely do people like throw away, you know, something that, you know, they've worked, you know, very hard to, or, or, you know, they're just, you know, a shoe Mm -hmm. in for a natural. I feel like if you have those talents and you're interested in them, you will continue to do it in some way. I think as well for a lot of creatives, they come into the bar industry because, you know, whether they're musicians or they're artists or whatever it is that they are creative about, they come into the bar industry because it's a good way for them to make money. And then they fall into a bar management role or a beverage director role or whatever. And they find themselves creating a cocktail menu or a program. Now, usually in their other projects, they're on their own time. They make, they're writing their music for themselves. There's Mm. no end point, right? Like there's no one on top of them being like, Hey, yeah, I need this menu. Right, right. Like you can't. So they also have like that creativity side, yes. But then they're also they're also being held accountable for making that program. They get told four weeks, and I think that feeling of starting something, getting through those horrible aspects of like, oh, this isn't what I want it to be. This isn't right. Mm-hmm. But then getting through to the end of the four weeks and completing it and seeing it printed and then seeing it come to fruition it's what a lot of creatives maybe don't have in their day-to-day life, right? Like, right. Or they do have in their day-to-day life, but it takes them six years. It's a portfolio. Mm-hmm. Right. Rather than like that quick hit of like, okay, we've got four weeks until we're going to start our fall program. Mm-hmm. We need eight new cocktails. And all of a sudden it's like, 
instant gratification oh shit like we, we we need eight new cocktails like and then even if it's two weeks to go their boss is like hey how are we doing with these cocktails right. i want to see them like what are you what have you created and it it forces them to be creative but also to be held accountable for it right and i yeah. think that that's why we see so many creatives in this space mm-hmm. like yeah i think it's that and it goes back to well not it goes back to but it it relates to you see a band and so many bands like their first album is the best album because they've had let's say you're 20 years old and release it. You had 20 years to write that first album. And then you get signed to a studio and they're like, hey, we need their album in 16 months. And right. you're like, <laughs> like oh. oh, shit. And so you write this album that's like, not half-assed, but just not, it's half-cooked right. in a way. Then that, that third album comes out, that fifth album comes out where they've actually put a lot of time. Maybe they're three- Life experiences. Yeah, live yeah. experience. And that three studio deal that you had is over and now you're kind of out on your own to go to a smaller label again. And you're like, oh, that band's back to where they are because they had constraints, but they also had time. Right. Where like, you're, I think that's what you're talking about right there. It's like every artist needs a constraint. Because you say like, hey, go like make me a song. I'm going to have a million different ideas. Where do I narrow it down to? How do I make this into what you want to hear if there's no rules to follow? And so many, so many painters talk about that too. Like once they would have someone commission them for artwork, it was easier that way because they actually had constraints to follow. They could use their talent, but then fix it into this nice little piece they needed by a certain amount of time right. versus like just going willy nilly and like I, this painting will never be done because it doesn't have to ever be done. Right. You can, and it's like you say, you go back and you edit and you edit and you yeah. edit yeah. and you record, but like, you know, something that probably gave you fulfillment in the bar scene was that mm. like, you know, Sometimes you can do something perfectly, yeah, of course, but in the bar scene, nothing's ever going to be perfect, so just get it done. Just make sure it's done. And right. that, that in itself like, is an addictive feeling, right? You make mm. one menu, it, it does really, really well. Mm-hmm. There's a bunch of cocktails that are set flying off the shelves, and you're thinking, wow, like, Damn, I designed this, like I work. made this yeah. story. Yeah. You know? um, no, it's just it's such an interesting thing because we always see parallels between those two mm-hmm. Or yeah. not even those two aspects of music and, and cocktails, but just like anything with that of that creativity and then in the cocktail scene as well, like creatives are definitely people that are often found behind the bars. Definitely. It's mutually relatable careers or pa- or you know, past just of they kind of uh, intertwine with one another because it's not a contract you're bound to. Right. The flexibility I think is key for a lot of artists. It's like it's I can if I need to take a shift off, you know, and get it covered, I can do that, you know. It's funny as well because I find that with buyers, you know, if you're at a small independent cocktail bar, mm. you know, there's a way to speak to that buyer because they are creative, right? Whereas like if you're at a chain, this person's probably more of like, there's, there's just sort of two sides of the same coin. They both want the same thing. They want the best booze, the best whatever. Mm-hmm. One of them is doing it because it's efficient and it's cheap right. and there's support and they can make money and they can make it fast and they can blah, 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 blah. The other one's doing it because someone came into their 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 bar and gave them a bottle of Twofold or Solera, oh, whatever it I'll was. I never do that. <laughs> but no, like, you know, obviously Danny, we were talking about Danny earlier from Game yeah, Cups. Yeah, like, yeah. someone gave him a bottle and he was like, man, I love this stuff. And that... It didn't matter how much it was. He was mm. just like, I want to make a cocktail with this. I want, and then you walked in the door and he's like, oh, mm. you know, like you're the Star Wars guy. Oh, mm. fantastic. Let's do this. You know? Yeah. And well, those are the two, the two types of people that you speak to, right? Yeah. You get the efficient and then you get the creative and they're very, two very, very different conversations. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Completely different approach. How, so a lot of people ask us, um, that listen to this podcast, like, how do you get a job in the whiskey industry? 
So from your perspective of working behind the bar to then becoming a brand ambassador, how did that process work? Uh, well, you, I would say the biggest thing just across the board in our industry is you have to be good with people. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I think that is the key driver. If you're not good with people, if you don't like talking to people, if you know, you're know you antisocial. Oh, God damn it. You know, uh, How I, the fuck did we get our jobs? I, I know. <laughs> I, I was just going to say, I'm actually an introvert. Uh, so I, I, yeah, I, I'm I know. very yeah. surprised that I'm, you know, I've done as well as I you know, have. But, you know, I mean, me personally, I'm a laid back guy, so I'm easy to talk to and I yeah. do enjoy, you know, individuals. So I think that that's number one is like you got to get your people skills down. Uh, and then two, um, you know, because the industry is filled with so many artists, uh, you just got to show up on time and do the things that are required. You got to answer the emails. You got to take that phone call. You got to answer the text. That's it. Yeah. I mean, and showing up is one of the biggest. Showing up is huge. It's showing up is 85, 90% absolutely. of these yeah. jobs. Just do what you say you're going to do and you'll be fine uh, because so many do not. Like, just, oh, I'm going to drop this thing yeah. off for you. And it's like a month later, like, you were supposed to, like, yeah. no, you're not on the menu now. You, you didn't give me the thing you said you were going to give me. Um, like, just tonight, like the happenstance running into Graham, who's another bartender in the city. And, you know, you meet Manny over at, he runs two different, essentially two different bars in one area like and previously before that i ran into two buyers in different bars at another bar <laughs> and the new buyer of that bar you're like yeah just like just showing up yeah so that's a big part of it is just being organized and being on top of your shit and people forget as well doing that the most important thing about all of that is being top of mind right so when when a buyer does so you know manny or mm. graham or yourself or whoever it might be that the next time someone asks you about whiskey or mm. like, or they're thinking about a whiskey cocktail, like you say Manny's looking at whiskey cocktails or whatever, he's going to be thinking about Star Wars. Like, and you, you, we take that for granted as well. And I think a lot of people that aren't in this industry maybe take that for granted as well, being top of mind. You know? Yeah, absolutely. And showing up and being the guy beats marketing all day, every day. Absolutely. You, know, you can see 100,000 billboards, but if the Star Wars guy <laughs> comes in every yeah. Wednesday... And you have a good conversation with them, sold. Yeah, you know? no, that speaks volumes, absolutely. Until a bar completely turns over and staff. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Hopefully, that reputation follows you to the next one. There's been a in. reorganization, <laughs> which seems to be happening all across Chicago. <laughs> but I mean, that is kind of the good thing, though, about this job is that if that does happen and you do have a good rapport with that buyer, you know. You know, unless wherever yeah. they end up, right? Where you're most likely going to get that new placement because you did the the right thing at their last spot. So, yeah. um, I also uh, can suggest getting into a fight at a whiskey event, and hopefully, <laughs> a buyer who's very large and intimidating and looking in figure is also there, and he backs you up, and then he first starts starts carrying your bar, your products <laughs> from bar to bar, which only happened once. So you know, whatever. Yeah, it's all it takes. People okay. reached across my table, started pouring the whiskey at the event. I came back, you know, said. You, you know, you owe me $300 or something like that. I don't know. Something along those lines. <laughs> um, nothing too crazy. But no, it is. I think showing up, being nice, just being sociable. Don't be like, you have a very gregarious personality, not like myself. Um, you can go into a bar. Like Stefan from Mr. Black and I rep accounts all time together all across the country. He's so much like more of a bubbly personality where I'm just kind of like sitting there hanging out and people are like, Oh, you're a nice guy. Like, I think that's kind of the takeaway they get from me, you know? Like, I'm not going to be like, hey, what's up, guys? Like, like, what are we drinking tonight? You know? Or, hey, friends. Like, it's just not my personality. Right, yeah. And if it is, like, roll with it. Like, that's 
great for this position. I'm kind of more of the guy who comes in. Yeah, that will work in your favor. Yeah, I'll, I'll, start, I'll spark a conversation with the bartender. I, I, I purposely will not get on my phone for the first five ten minutes. I'm in a bar if if I'm you know trying to engage with that person. Um, because sometimes you do go to a bar just to get some work done. But, you know, if, like, you're going into a new account or going into a potential account, like, yeah, I want to, like, engage with that bartender and letting them know just visually by you're not on your phone, you're not distracted by something else. It's a key component. Yeah, absolutely. And then, of course, you know, having a passion for whiskey or, yeah. you know, whatever, you know, avenue you want to get into is, is a big thing. I, I would say you don't necessarily have to be the most knowledgeable. I, I feel like... I've met a lot of people, you know, getting into the brand ambassador world that, you know, are, are very gung ho and have great credentials, but maybe not the most knowledgeable. But that's okay in that you're going to learn as you go. Mm-hmm. And like again, I feel like okay, well, you're a whiskey nerd, but you can't answer emails. You're someone who knows something about whiskey, but you're very really well organized and is a very well respected. Mm. I think I'm going to take the second i agree you know, over the former yeah like the whiskey nerd i love you i love to talk but like if, if you can't if you can't do the job itself then you're not going to get it yeah there always has to be time like i mean that's where your mornings become it's an admin day i would say probably on average most people don't go see a lot of counts on fridays and mondays just because yeah. you don't want to bother people are organizing for the weekend mondays a lot of places aren't open or you know they're restocking from the weekend before um that kind of becomes part of our daily activity of like this the day catch up do your admin work do your phone calls do your team calls and do all that so you're ready to go for those three days in between in the middle of the week right. where you hit it yeah it's gung-ho yeah for sure yeah so from angels envy how long were you there for two and a half years okay started off uh new york only and then i like a year and a half in i got promoted to uh, northeast and then i had an opportunity to work for alan katz in new york distilling in brooklyn mm-hmm. and so that was a full-time position angels envy uh at the time was a you know part-time contractor position. what do they call their program whiskey guardian yeah okay, yeah yeah is that where mr o'connell came into play that is that's mm. where i met him we mm. were there at the same time my uh my co- now co-worker sean o'connell who is the star Wars brand ambassador on the west coast steven and him worked together at angels it was a very special time to be with that brand i mean the yeah. brand was exploding the team was wonderful i mean it was it was a wonderful job it really was i i was sad to leave but you know, at a certain point, you're like, well, it's it's only a part-time job. Okay. You know, you need something more substantial. Um, Were you still bartending then on the side? So I was doing Angel's Envy and Lou Stow. Um, at oh. that at that point, I was just doing the two simultaneously. Oh, okay. Um, but when I first started brand work, I was bartending and doing both brand jobs. Oh, wow. And doing side stuff. Yeah. You know, gigs on the side. Uh, so yeah, I think at one point I had four jobs while I was in New York, which yeah. is a very New York thing to do. Um, I don't miss those days at all. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I, I left Angels because uh, I wanted to work for Alan Katz, who owns New York Distilling Company in Brooklyn. They mm-hmm. make really good rye whiskey and gin. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to be a part of something local. I, you know, I, I love the idea of peddling something that was made right down the street yeah, cool. and, and being part of a community. But also, I, wa- I wanted to work for Alan because I, I just love him to death. And we had a lot of parallels. He was also a musician. Huh. Um, but he's also, you know, a really well-respected spirits educator. And as someone wanting to get into spirits education, I was like, well, 
who better to you know learn from than Alan? Mm-hmm. And so that was the main driver. It's like I, I loved angels. I didn't want to leave, but here was an opportunity to really have like my first mentor in the business, which I, I really didn't have. Yeah. Um. I I didn't work at any you know of the you know top cocktail bars like Nomad or, or Lyanda. <laughs> I actually had an opportunity and took that beverage director job instead, just because it was like I can go be a bartender at the Nomad Hotel. Or I can go be a beverage director for this company Mm. and do bigger things. And ultimately, I went in that direction. But still to this day, you know, seven years later, I look back on that and I'm like, I wonder what my life would have been like if I had bartended at Nomad. Um, What do you think it would have been potentially like? I don't know. I really don't. I mean, I definitely would have competed, you know, more. I... I probably would have been a bar owner by now, I think. Oh, you think so? I think so. Huh. Or a co-owner. Huh. I think I would have leaned more towards that end versus, you know, getting wanting to get out, which is definitely how I felt. Well, part of it was, you know, again, being a very tall human. <laughs> um, bartending just wasn't feasible for my back. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, getting older, you're like, oh, do I have to restock this beer cooler and, like, throw my back out? Right. So it was just one of those, like, I'm ready to evolve from that because physically it's becoming harder. Uh, so that was definitely, you know, part of it. Right. Um, but, yeah, I just think that, you know, corporate experience with that particular beverage director job is what really steered me into the brand world. Hmm. It's because I really started to get a taste of that side, you know, working with those sort of people, which that would not have happened at Nomad. I just would have been a bartender maybe one day head bartender and and would have got into that thing you know these sort of things but um you know with that beverage director job it really gave me a foot in the door to you know to work with brands so um so you go over to brooklyn to new york distilling co are you working behind the bar there as well nope just sales i was their first full-time employee what year is this 2018 okay started 2018 so this whole time had you had Lyme did you have Lyme disease I did wow Damn. sucked yeah really sucked what year was did you get Lyme disease 20 June 13th 2016 wow right. just uh were you out in the wood area or I went to Nantucket to work their food and wine festival and I came back and immediately got sick mm. yeah it was instant wow um yeah ugh Rough, rough, rough go of it. And then when did you change from that to where you are now with Lustal? Uh, sadly, because of COVID, I, I lost my job. I mean, we stayed on through the PPP loan. So, yeah. you know, we had those three months. I was living in Midtown, uh, you know, on, well, on the border of Midtown, Upper East Side. I was on, you know, 59th and 1st Avenue. Um, I, as much as I tried to make sales during that time, it just didn't happen. I have never felt more worthless in my life as far as being an employee. Sales jobs will do that to you. Yeah. They will do. Yeah. But I mean, in that time particularly, it was like you would walk into a liquor store trying to and they, you know, sell something and be like, what the fuck are you doing here? Like, I'm going out of business. Yeah. Like, I'm not going to mm. buy anything. Uh, get the fuck out of here. What are you doing? And then sure enough, you walk by there a week later and it's closed. Yeah. Uh, it was just, it was just brutal. And yeah, it was, it was just to the point where, you know, Alan had to let us go. He offered me to stay on part time, but mm-hmm. I essentially told him, I was like, a, I, you know, with the Lyme disease, uh, I didn't feel comfortable being out there full time, like being on the train and, and all of that. Oh, I, yeah. I would essentially only go to places that I could walk to. Gotcha. And I told him, I said, you know, until there's a vaccine, I'm not going to get on a train 
and I've already tried to do everything I can do for you, you yeah. know, and I, I love you like a brother. I'm not going to take your money. Mm. I'm not going to waste your time. I, there's, I literally don't know what I can do for you, That's f- uh, which sucks yeah. um, because I took that job with the intention of I'm going to like build this brand. Like, yeah. This is going to be my brand. I'm going to be part of this. You know, this is going to be my home. The success story. Yeah, yeah exactly. It's like, I'm going to help. For every one of those, there's a hundred. You know. I know. And it's just, it's just the way, you know, it goes and it's, it's a shame, but thankfully, um, strangely enough, uh, Lou Stow did pretty well during COVID. One of the big things that really brought me to Chicago was we took our certification course online. Mm -hmm. Um, In the Sherry world, there are only two certifications, the Master Sherry, the Sherry Educator course from Spain, uh, which I took in 2016. And then now, Lustau a few years ago created the CSWS, the Certified Sherry Wine Specialist course. Um, I know it's a lot to say. Uh, it's Said like it a, very it's, well. It's like an intermediate. It's you know like a step below the the master course, and it's the only one offered. And so because of COVID, we had to take that online, and because of that, it blew up to oh. the point where our brand educator Lucas, who's been with the brand, uh, you know, way before I even started. So probably 10 years at this point, um, Lucas, you know, essentially said, I can only handle the online courses. It's, it's a lot. We need someone to go out there and do this course for the trade and, and our distributors. So that was you, uh, that was me. So yeah, it was kind of a caveat. Like they couldn't justify having two people in New York anymore because of COVID. And of course, you know, small brands really took a huge hit. Yeah. But at the same time, it's like we have this need for you to get out there and, you know, do more distributor trainings and stuff mm. like that. We don't have anyone in Chicago. Um, you know, w- would you want to move? And here I am. So what about time was this all happening, that transition? Or when did they hire you, first off? Um, so this kind of happened. Well, I got promoted to national ambassador r- right before COVID, like 2019, November. Okay. Um, but taking over the Sherry certification course really didn't happen until maybe six to eight months into COVID. So when did you leave North Stlinko? Um, June, end of June, 2020. Okay. So you're doing both. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that was the thing. Um, even though it was a full-time job in New York, uh, working for New York Distilling Co., it's a small brand, so you know it just couldn't pay me what I needed to make. Right. And so Alan was very gracious, and he let me keep the loose down on the side because it, it doesn't, you know, compete. Yeah. As long as it didn't interfere with my work, which you know, looking back on it now, I don't think it ever really did. There were definitely times where I was stressed out, and I was like, "Fuck, what I? What yeah. am I two brand jobs. You know, God, what am I getting myself wild. into? Oh. Yeah, it's it's it was a lot. Um, but I think I did a good job of never letting it interfere. If anything, I tried to, you know blend them together i was gonna ask you like do you go to account and sell both absolutely okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. you have to right yeah absolutely it's like double dip why not it's like oh by the way i have this uh this sherry in my right yeah. yeah yeah exactly oh man how wild so then you eventually alan's like all right part-time you're like admirable enough i can't take your money right now right and it becomes uh full-time with this style right away yeah pr- yeah i would say there was a lull of six months, Okay. you know, so I was still with Lustau, you know, ke- you know, keeping that current position. I was on partial unemployment and then, yeah, the opportunity came where like, we want you to do this role. Would you just need to move? Yeah. And so 
then it was well i gotta get out of new york which that was a whole nother you know pain in the ass was that sad grateful mixed feelings i mean it was sad in that i wasn't quite ready to go i mean you know obviously before covid i wasn't ready to go at all right um but when covid hit i I started to realize like i'm probably gonna have to leave at some point if Mm -hmm. i don't get a good job or you know land something Mm. that you know speaks to me and then yeah by the end of it it was more like bitter because it's like i didn't accomplish the things i wanted to do this isn't how i wanted it to end this isn't how i saw it ending i'm still grateful for my time there and you know miss it and you know wish it would have went differently but it didn't you know and i essentially was faced with the option of you have this opportunity here you can either take it and run with it or you can stay and try to make new york work during covid which proved very difficult Mm. so yeah i ultimately was like you know what i love chicago like Oh, darn, I have to move back to Chicago? Yeah, I was going to ask you, like, how you do know? you feel about, like, coming back here? No, I love it here. Grateful. I, I, I Absolutely. Yeah, I that, love this city to death. The no, people, everything about it. No, those winters can loom over you hard. And... Yeah, well, well, I mean, again, this winter wasn't that bad, so. Right, right, right. Maybe next year I'll regret these words. So uh, you move here, and what does your position become right away? Uh, well, I kept the same title, National yeah. Ambassador. It was just more duties and, yeah. and more pay and more you know expectations of me more pay no way yeah Yeah, more responsibilities yeah is there a difference between the chicago market and the new york market you see drastically i think it's easier to work with people here Mm. um which is why i say every time i go outside of chicago right (laughs) (laughs) i'm like wow everyone in texas is so nice i know everyone in chicago is so nice but yeah new york it's so cutthroat and it's like you know never show up you know unannounced you know that's you're just that was, yeah. you're gonna make enemies real quick like if you don't have a meeting scheduled or unless it's a really good friend of yours and you know like they don't mind you just stopping in to like show them the you know the new thing you you got right um yeah you, you need to really be mindful of everyone else's time and their positions and they will be very forward and tell you like to fuck off or like mm-hmm. you know who sent you or how did you know how did you get my contact info i mean it, it's pretty cutthroat um whereas i feel like here uh you know of course there's still some really high end, you know fast-paced yeah. spots but on the whole i think people are just easier to work with here they will be like at least accessible do you like oh i come in like Now's not a great time, but here's my card, or you know, right. come back. Right, this exactly. Time. There's very few bartenders, beverage directors that will just like tell you to get out. Right. Has it happened? Yeah, sure, why not? But you know, we were also, I think, become so cognizant over COVID about not taking up that bar space when we only had half capacity, forty percent capacity, uh, quarter capacity in bars. We're like, I just can't show up to bars and right. take up that one valuable spot. Yeah. So people are very cognizant of that here. I don't. I don't personally i don't do it that much unless you said like you said good friends bar or like you know well enough where you can show up and it's almost comfortable enough where it's yeah it's a sales call on my end but it's also just kind of like i'm coming here just to drink and shoot the shit at the same time and then work will happen naturally in that conversation yeah so yeah it's i do i did notice you know my time in new york like wow like you just kind of have to have an appointment for everything you really do yeah i just don't want to show up if you do show up like i don't say necessarily every time you get kicked out or anything not get kicked out but like you will be ignored right absolutely <laughs> uh, aggressively ignored. absolutely <laughs> yeah would be a good way of putting it um it is different in that aspect where then you go to other accounts in colorado and 
Texas and various other places. People are so welcoming to see. I know, <laughs> like, I know. Especially like the, the smaller secondary markets. Like I was oh, in yeah. Birmingham, Alabama for I'm the sure. first time. And they were just so happy. Like, you actually came here? Like a brand person came here to see us? Like just yeah. so grateful. And, yeah. you know, I was only there for like four days, but... By the last day, I was driving around with you know <laughs> buyers and like hanging out with them, and you know we you know became friends, and it's like man, this is great. Like people just are really happy that you're just here to show yeah. them some love, and yeah. you, you didn't you know overlook them and go to Atlanta instead. Yeah, the first time ever happened to me with Star Wars was uh, in Buffalo, and went there to do a whiskey class at a whiskey bar with like thirty five people that bought tickets and something happened with our east coast ambassador or i don't know who's gonna do it someone got sick or whatever and like can you come out and do it i'm like yeah sure but like can we see some accounts along the way and so one did a day of an account visits went to this uh bar to the class and they're like so what else are you doing out here i'm like oh just pretty much this this is my last stop like you just came out here for this i'm like not just this i got some other things along the way set up but yeah pretty pretty much (laughs) yeah like like wow that's pretty crazy i wouldn't have done that it's like well we're trying to grow a brand. We said we're going to be here. Like we said earlier, show up. Show up yeah. If you commit to something, make sure you're there. Yeah, absolutely. It's very important to what we do in life. It really is. Well, so Lustau, Sherry, how does that go from having this passion of music to, I don't want to say supplanting it, but uh, making cocktails and you know the behind the bar experience a passion? Obviously, whiskey is a passion of yours to what you're doing now. Uh, well, I mean, I think sh- I w- always was drawn to Sherry uh, and Fortified Wines in general just because there's so much to talk about and there's so much diversity within the category. Mm. Um, arguably the most diverse category out there, except for maybe like herbal liqueurs. Um, but I would think maybe Fortified Wines trump them as far as production processes go. And so that is one thing that always stood out to me. Um, but then also just the flavors of Sherry. It's mm. like, you don't encounter some of these anywhere, especially like a Fino. It's like, when have you had a wine that's dry and salty? Like it doesn't happen except for here. And so I think that was the other part of it was, it's like, these are really interesting and there's a lot to talk about and mm. there's so much that goes into them and there's so many different styles. It just, I just felt like, there's a lot to for me to you know learn about this category, but also because it's such a niche category, it's fun to talk about because you know I have become I don't want to say an authority, but you know like someone you know who can hold their own and, and talk about this really you know crazy category, and you know can really see the impact on people. It's like oh God, I never knew, or like it all it all makes sense now. It's like. I, I I feel more rewarded in doing mm. sherry education than I did with whiskey because mm. I felt like with whiskey, I don't want to say it was more limited, but how many whiskey brand ambassadors yeah. have these people come across and talk to about whiskey and you learn about mash bills and they try to tell you the thing that makes them special. It's like half the time when I'm you know doing a Lustau sherry training, I'm not talking a lot about Lustau. I mean, we taste loose style, but I'm just talking about the category mm. and I'll even dive into some of the other brands and talk about them because I think it's important. Um, so I, I think that's one, one thing that really drew me to it. It's like, I'm here to talk about the category, mm-hmm. not necessarily the brand. I mean, I'm going to mm. talk about the brand, but it's more about the, you know, Jerez lifestyle itself. Do you think it's your job to be a point of, not authority, but a point of an educational person for sherry overall versus just your brand i think so yeah Mm. i think you know when i got the master certification you know i I went from 
I'm just a brand person to now I'm, you know, a representative of the region. Hmm. I'm able, certified by them to talk about the wines from the region. And so, yeah, I, I, you know, and whether Lustyle likes it or not, I, I think they would agree with me that, you know, I'm very adamant about telling people, if you really want to learn this category, you have to try the other brands. And that's something that really killed me when I took the Master Sherry course, because at the time, most of my Sherry interaction was with Lustyle, because yeah, right. well, that's what I'm selling all the time. And then you get over there and you visit all these bodegas and you try all these wines and you're like, but your Amontillado tastes like your Palo Cortado and like this tastes different. And then mm. by the time I got to the test, I was almost confused because mm. I realized I hadn't tried enough brands and I hadn't tried enough, you know, different perspectives on this category that it kind of hindered me. And so, I mean, I love Lustown because I, th I think it's a wonderful lineup and it's a great house and I will always be a supporter of it, uh, you know, long after I, I'm not with them, if that ever happens. Um, but I'm very adamant about telling people, you got to try the other brands just for perspective. You know? Yeah. No, I think I, 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 uh, I have a, a struggle with that on a daily basis because, you know, working for Australian whiskey and there's really no other Australian whiskeys in America. <laughs> I'm like, well, do I present star Wars as an Australian whiskey brand or just as a whiskey itself. Because when you say Australian whiskey, people, you open the floodgate of like what? Australia makes whiskey. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. And like, and you don't want to be a point of authority on Australian whiskey. Really. It's only been like a 30 year old category, a re a revived 30 year old category. And it's also like, I've never lived in Australia. Like I know that I've, I can read books and I can have conversations, but it's not like I grew up in Australia. Like I have in America and you, you can, you almost like feel like you're a part of that that rye, part of that bourbon, part of that this whole American whiskey story. When like I'm just like a fraud from like eight thousand miles away, <laughs> <laughs> telling a story about this brand that I know upside down and inside out, but at the same time, like I don't know Australia, right? Yeah, so it, I I wonder like how many other people as brand ambassadors want to bring in the full category. I would love to talk more about Australian brands, but I just really can't because yeah. they're not here yeah. i can say like what i've tried what i've had what's been here in the past but if it's not like also on the shelf next to star Wars, it's kind of hard to bring it up in conversation right, yeah, absolutely so yeah it's always and i was actually just having this conversation with one of my bosses today she's like you shouldn't be a point of authority on australian whiskey you should be the, the voice of star Wars, and we should kind of get away from that as a brand i'm like well that does make sense because you kind of are then trying to sell two different products, You're trying to right. sell Australian whiskey and your brand itself. Right. But it's nice that you have, you have so many other options that come through Spain, you know, and other fortified wines across the world that you can kind of relate to in that sense. Right. Well, and also, I mean, I, w you know, would love for Sherry to be as popular as whiskey. I think yeah. that's another part of it is like, you know, it, it helps Lustau, you know, to get people just interested in sherry, mm -hmm. you know, um, whereas, you know, because whiskey's so loved and, you know, you know people are drawn toward it, uh, you know, it's, I, I think it's, as a brand person, you have to be more focused on the brand because, you know, that, that that's what's required of you to push the brand. But because sherry isn't flying off the shelves, it's like, uh, well, it's really important to push not just loose down, but the category itself, because the category still has a long way to go. Mm -hmm. And I always try to tell, you know, when I do a, a staff training or, or, or lecture, I always try to thank the bartenders and, and say, like, wholeheartedly, <laughs> you're the reason I have a job. <laughs> yeah. Like, if it wasn't for, bar, you know, cocktail bartenders using sherry and cocktails, I would not have a job. I, we wouldn't I wouldn't be here talking about sherry. 
Um, you know, they don't even drink that much of it in Spain. If you go over there, you mm. realize it's red wine, shitty beer, and uh, gin and tonics. You know, <laughs> all right. Um, you know, a lot of people aren't drinking sherry even in Spain, and so I, I think that's a big part of it. Is you know, I'm trying to you know, bring this category, you know, into the modern world. Yeah. And I think we're in a good time because, you know, low ABV is trending and I think people mm. are, you know, interested in, in being more mindful drinkers. Um, I think because sherry is extremely affordable, yeah. um, you know, versus a lot of wines, that that's also a, a big, you know, check in the box for sherry. It's like, well, you can have this 96 point wine for $16 a bottle, yeah. you know, it's like, it's a really, it's a really good quality wine. Uh, so I think that helps, but then also just, you know, so much diversity and so many avenues for you to go down. I, I think, I'll, I think a lot of people could get into Sherry if they just would give it a little effort. Yeah, absolutely. No, I, I know that pitch just, uh, getting <laughs> something a little bit different, you know, right. but, but at least loose style carries some weight too. When you say that, no, name. absolutely. I mean, the brand is very lucky to be, I would say the top three brands called on you know, in the Sherry world, especially in cocktails. Um, but yeah, I, I think in America, we still have to get over the stigma of, oh, sherry, it's like port. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, it can be. And, you know, a cream sherry or a PX or a muscatel. Yeah, sure. It's mm. like, a you know, a port. But 95% of sherry production are the dry, funky, nutty, salty, weird tasting, you know, flavors. You know, that is really what sherry's about. And so we still have a long way to go to get people in America to understand that. Sure, it's like port, but actually, it's it's kind of not like port at all. <laughs> and and that's why all three of us have the positions we have to educate people that's on right. what we do. Yeah. Absolutely, that's why we're here. Well, um, wow, it's already been an hour and twenty minutes. Wow, wow, that went quickly. I don't want to take any more of our late Wednesday evening. <laughs> uh, but no, uh, I'm hey, going to be out so late tonight. Uh, are you are you gonna are you gonna hit that hard? I'm, no, I, but I gotta. I'm gonna go. So yeah, yeah your brand are porn, baby. Like a, 25 minute drive so it's ah like, it's only uh, 20 at the summer night 19 minutes 18 <laughs> thanks for that eight, yeah, thanks eight, for that actually 18 i always say 18 minutes yeah. straight down halstead baby yeah. um no but uh steven appreciate it it's been uh thank you very much yeah i've been it's a great story yeah it's a great story we need to have like a full-on sherry tasting on one of these podcasts please yeah well i i i meant to reach out to you earlier today like should i bring a bottle of sherry for us to drink always yeah. don't ever be okay. hesitant about that done next there's time there's only one answer to that all right well yeah. i'll just bring two next time yeah. That's the right or three. <laughs> or three. We maybe record at a bar and make some cocktails too. <laughs> that would be great. Awesome. Well, um, any party words, Callum? No, I just think I think it's such a great story. You know, I really enjoyed it. I think the big the big things for me were that you're holding jobs down while you had Lyme disease, yeah, which is nice. insane. Um, but yeah, I think the only thing that I would say to add is that you know learning about sherry. If you are a whiskey brand ambassador, I spent a lot of time learning about sherry because. Aberlauer is so, I mean, scotch in general. Scotch and sherry so go hand in hand, yeah. yeah. You know, so invested in it. And I think that in my tastings, I spent a lot of time talking about sherry, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, depending on the scotches, whether it was a PX or whether it was an Oloroso or whatever it was. And nowadays I'm working with Redbreast, who has obviously the PX and the Lostal. Mm. So one of my favorite distilleries. I oh. mean, just so good. Absolutely. Yeah, and that's the Billy thing. Billy Layton is a gem of a human being as well. He's the nicest man. You're like, oh, you make some of the best whiskey on the planet. <laughs> Amazing. It's <laughs> usually how the best whiskey makers are. I you feel know. like 
But yeah, man, I, I love the story. Um, and anyone listening that has maybe not really listened or not really heard much or tasted much sherry, hopefully this inspires them to do that. Because like you say, you could go out and get three of the best bottles of sherry on the planet and it comes to less than 50 bucks. Yeah, you know, it's super affordable. I mean, it's bang for your buck. It's hard to beat sherry. Yeah. So give it a try. Be, be adventurous. I have to end it there. Be adventurous. Be adventurous, people. Be adventurous. All right. Well, cheers, everybody. <laughs> Let us know if you have any questions about uh, Sherry, Vistow, anything above in that category. And we'll direct all those questions to Stephen. He can answer them for you. Please do. Awesome, Ciao, guys. guys. Cheers. Ciao.